you would, grab your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible with you, grab the one that's in the, the rack in front of you and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new to Grace Fellowship, the way that we handle sermons here is we preach through whole books of the Bible. Uh, and what we're currently studying is this little book of Ecclesiastes. If uh, that's not a book you're familiar with, that's okay. It's not a book that we, uh, we visit a whole lot. Um, but if you kind of open your Bible up about halfway through and see the book of Psalms, take a right, go through Proverbs, uh, and then Ecclesiastes is right after that. It's the caution light. There's not even a stop sign. All right, it's a small book, so don't miss it. Um, but uh, it, though it's a small book, as you've discovered, if you've been here the past couple of weeks, it's a very punchy book. As a child, I despised liquid medicine. I, I, I'm still to this day fairly certain that uh, whoever invented cherry flavor or grape flavor has never actually tasted a cherry or a grape. Um, but so, so since I would always spit up liquid medicine, what my parents would do is they would, they would try to put it in something else like apple juice, something like that, so that I would still take my medicine because they were convinced that the benefit of the medicine was better than the temporary discomfort of the taste of the medicine. And if you think about it, that's the way we look at everything in life, right? The long, we, we, all, all of life, you may not realize this, but almost every decision you make is a cost-benefit analysis. And sometimes you're wrong, we're wrong, right? But I mean, have you ever considered the fact that, uh, have you ever thought about how dangerous driving or riding in an automobile is? It's incredibly dangerous, right? To hurtle down the interstate at 70 plus, and I realize some of us go 70 plus uh, miles an hour, right? But... We've determined that the cost, right, that the risk associated with such things is worth the benefit of not having to live next door to work, right, or walking to work, right? Uh, and so there are many things in which we would say the benefit is worth the cost. And that, we would say, is true of Ecclesiastes. As we've read it, we found this to be an unblushing and very realistic book. Right, It stings when we read it, but we need it. It's like that bad-tasting medicine. It brings healing, but first you have to put up with the taste, uh, the taste of the medicine. And so uh, what the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to do, and that's the, that's the voice in this book. He calls himself the preacher. Your translation may say the teacher. But what he wants us to do is take a hard realistic look at our lives and evaluate them, right? He wants us to look at what we so often pursue and try to gain out of life, but his aim is not to leave us in despair. His aim is to guide us in how to really live. Uh, David Gibson is a, a pastor and a commentator. He, he writes a book called Life, uh, Living Life Backwards. So if you want a good book on Ecclesiastes, uh, that one that one is a good book. If you're a part of our growth groups, which are meeting now, um, the, a lot of the discussion questions we'll use on Wednesday nights come from uh, Gibson's book. But, but here's what he says. What Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us is that life is gift, not gain. 
Life is gift, not gain. It is a gift from God to be enjoyed, not something that we deserve or are entitled to. That's what, that's what Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us. And he's going to do that again this morning as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. This too is God's word. He gives it to us to teach us, and he gives it to us because he loves us. And so let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Our great God, we're not accustomed to hearing what we would call maybe dark, such dark meditation. Uh, This is not what we maybe expect from Scripture. And so, Lord, would you help us uh, to understand what's here and to apply it to our lives and to fix our eyes on you? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard the expression that more is, more is learned in the valley than on the mountaintop? What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that we usually learn more from struggle and sorrow, right, down in the valley than we do when everything's good, right, when everything's happy. Because in the mountain, when we're on the mountaintop, when all is well, we're often not really thinking much about it. Uh, but that life, that wisdom really is gained down in the valley. Uh, sorrow deepens us in a way that happiness cannot. And so I think that's what the preacher's after in these passages. It's kind of hard to, to get a sense of the, of the theme of these verses. They seem fairly disjointed, and there's some difficult things here. But it actually begins back in 316, where uh, the, the preacher makes several observations about life under the sun. So you see it in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun. Uh, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Uh, verse 4, then I saw... 
all the toil and skill and work. Verse 7, again, I saw. He's, he's making observations about life under the sun. So let's, let's define that phrase, under the sun. What is meant by that? What's, there are some people who say that, that life under the sun, what the preacher is talking about here, is life apart from God, what we would call a secularist, somebody who does not have God in the frame, God in view. It's just life apart from God. But I don't think that that view really adequately does justice to the fact that even people who believe in God struggle with some of the same things. That those who believe and those who don't live in the same world and have many of the same struggles and trials. And so I don't think that definition of under the sun is broad enough. I think it needs to be bigger. Under the sun refers to life in a fallen world. Life in a world that has been affected by human sin. Affected and infected by human sin. That it's rampant. That it's everywhere. That it affects everything we see. And so we live in a world, even people who know God... uh, We live in a world where things don't turn out the way we want them to. And we live in a world where we often see things that we wish we had not seen or experience things that we wish we had not experienced. That's what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is after. So the question then is, well, there's two questions I want to try to answer today. One is, what's the value of even making such observations? I mean, isn't this a little bit of a downer? Why, why even point these things out? Uh, and then the second is, how should we live in such a world? What, what would a good life look like under the sun? And we've hinted at some of those things already uh, in previous sermons on Ecclesiastes. We're meant to enjoy life as a gift, the work that God gives us, the food and the drink that God gives us. We're meant to stand in awe of God. And so um, Ecclesiastes hits some of the same themes again and again and again because, I don't know about you, I need reminding of the same things again and again and again, right? Uh, the, 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 my, my car uh, is bent in one direction, right? Like it, like it always veers to the left. And so, right, whenever you have a car that does that, what do you, I mean, short of take it to the mechanic to get fixed, what do you do? You pull it to the right. Right. That's what Ecclesiastes does. It's always pulling us and reminding us of some of the same things again and again and again so that we'll absorb it and take it in. Um, So I want to try to answer those two questions in three ways this morning. First, uh, in the first two points, we're going to look at his observations that he makes. Right. Uh, The first observation set of observations he makes is that injustice and oppression are rampant. The second observation that he makes is that we are driven by envy and selfishness. And there's there's the connecting theme between those two sets of observations. The connecting theme between those two sets of observations is that we live for ourselves. That's why there's injustice. That's why there's oppression. That's why there's envy. That's why there's selfishness, right? Because we the, the first question that we ask ourselves is how about me? Instead of how about we? as David Gibson puts it. And then the solution, I think, that the preacher gives to those observations or the way that we live in light of those observations is that the the better life is lived to benefit others. 
that when we live to benefit ourselves, we increase this striving after wind. We, we, we increase the futility of life. But when we live to benefit others, life becomes better. Life is more bearable. All right, so let's, let's look at that first observation that he makes about injustice and oppression. I pointed out that the section really begins back in 316 where we see he says that, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness, right? So what he's saying is, in the very place where we would expect to find fair treatment, in the very places where we would expect to find justice, we often find wickedness. All of us have that innate sense of justice, right? Uh, we're born with an innate sense of what, of what equal treatment under the same standard looks like and if you don't think that's true uh, just try to give candy to one child while you withhold it from another how you've been there how do we respond when that happens that's not fair right we all have that innate sense of of fairness or what is of what is just in fact, if there's a conflict between two people that they cannot resolve, that's why we have law courts that are designed to render fair judgment. They aren't supposed to show favorites, uh, play favorites or show partiality. You've probably seen pictures of, or statues of Lady Justice. And in one hand, she has a sword to mete out the consequences of justice. What does she have in her other hand, do you know? scales, right, to make sure that justice is balanced. But even then, what does she also have over her eyes? A blindfold, because justice is supposed to be blind. Justice isn't meted out based on appearances. But we know that's not often the case, that the ideal of justice uh, is far from what, the ideal is far from the reality, right? In a fallen world, the scales are balanced or imbalanced in favor of those with power, right? The blindfold is often lifted. Favor is shown to those with the most influence, which is why he can say then in chapter 4, verse 1, he also sees oppression. He sees the tears of the oppressed. There's no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. So the powerful are holding down the weak, those who are strong, taking advantage of the weak. Do you know what we call that? We call it abuse. When someone who has power uses it to manipulate and control and harm someone who doesn't. Right? That is abuse. That is oppression. I remember, I think it was when our oldest son was born. When we were in the hospital, they give you a, a folder uh, that has all of this information that you'll never read. Um, you know, it's got all the medical documents. Those, those are good to hold on to. And then it has like all of this other information that they want you to know uh, as if there was any amount of information you could know uh, about taking a newborn home. But one of the things in that folder struck me. There was a small pamphlet. It was a brochure. It was very short. And the title of it said, It is never okay to shake a baby. 
It's never okay to shake a baby, which is not really advice you think you would have to give someone. Um, Though, those of you who have had children can see how in the middle of the night when thing when when your breaking point is past why that would be information you have to share but right there is such a thing as shaken baby syndrome where an infant can be shaken long enough and hard enough that brain damage occurs and they can die what do we call that that is oppression that is abuse that's somebody who has power using their power to harm someone who is weak. And this is where justice should come in and defend the rights of the powerless. But often justice is on the side of the powerful. So then you can understand why he comes to the conclusion he does in verses 2 and 3. Right? And that, I mean, they're, they're probably the darkest verses in the book. But what does he say? He says... I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been. What's he saying? When he, when he takes a long, hard look at the injustice and oppression in the world, when he sees the powerful abusing the powerless, he says, good grief. It would just be better not to have been born. That's, and, it, and if you look long enough at the evil in the world... You might come to the same, you you can understand why he would reach that conclusion, why he would come to that realization. And so now we ask that question, why why would you even make such an observation? Why would you bring any of this stuff up, right? It's It's a downer, it's depressing. There's a reason that we say ignorance is bliss. We would just as soon turn our eyes, escape, and retreat, get busy doing something else. But he wants us to look at this, and he wants us to think about this, because this is the world we live in. This is reality, and we cannot ignore it. In fact, if you're a Christian, you should not ignore it. Why would I say that? Well, so here's, here's what we do, and this is what every single person does, Christian, non-Christian. When we see something that discomforts us, what's our first strategy? Avoid, right? Look away, move. We, we, we don't want to see what's really there, and so we, we flip to entertainment, right? We move off of what we don't want to see and move to something that we do. But what that creates in us is what, is what I called previously, it creates a, a hallmark faith, right? This sentimental, sweet, mushy kind of faith that... that a faith that doesn't live in the real world. A faith, in fact, that doesn't know how to interact with the real world. It's, it's a Thomas Kincaid painting. Everything's perfect. Everything's in its place. It, it's picturesque. It's beautiful. It's just not real. And I don't think God wants us to have a hallmark faith. He wants us to have a real faith that exists in a real world. The reason God doesn't want us to live in a fantasy world is because he came to save this world. He took on flesh and entered not a fantasy world, but this world. 
right? When Jesus came preaching the kingdom with words, he also accompanied it with deeds. He healed people who were oppressed by physical illness. He freed people who were enslaved to evil spirits. He challenged the religious authorities who benefited themselves at the expense of the people. And ultimately, he was the victim of an unjust legal system. Jesus came into the world to challenge the injustice of the world and to redeem it. And we should follow suit. Not that we are the redeemer, but we can at least follow in his footsteps of loving the same broken world. Right? So... It's right to groan when we see the cruelty that humans unleash on each other. It's right that we groan that. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus heals a man who is both deaf and mute. But do you know what he does before he heals him? It says he looks up to heaven and he sighs. That word sigh can also be translated groans. Jesus groans at the brokenness in the world. In John chapter 11, uh, when Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, twice John tells us that Jesus is deeply moved. That word used for deeply moved means indignant. Jesus is borderline angry. And he weeps. Not sheds a few tears, but weeps. Now let's think about that for a second. Jesus knows absolutely what he's about to do. He's about to raise John from the dead. So why isn't he carefree? Why doesn't he look at the the death of his friend and the people around him? Why doesn't he look at him and be like, hey guys, just settle down. You can stop crying. Look, I'm going to fix it all. Right? Lazarus, come on out, buddy. See, you can stop crying. But he doesn't do that. Jesus is indignant that death is in the world. He is angry. We have a God who is moved by the injustice and oppression in the world. So moved by it that he came to do something about it. And so we want to live in that same world. We want to follow that same God. And then we have that second set of observations that he makes. In chapter 4, verse 4, he looks and he says, I saw that all toil and skill and work come, come from a man's envy of his neighbor. You might say, hey, that's a little bit unfair. I don't work because I'm envious of my neighbor. But the, but, but the preacher wants us to check up a little bit. What are, what are our motives? Why do we strive so hard at the things we strive hard for? What are we trying to prove? And who are we trying to prove it to? Are we doing the things we do because we envy those around us? We, we want what they have. Or we look the other direction. We look down and we say we're thankful because we're better than them. There's that motive And then you have the opposite there in verse 5, where it talks about the fool just folding his hands and 
It's talking about those who say, you know what, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to be a part of that rat race. I'm just going to come over here and I'm going to quit. I'm just going to fold my hands. But what is the result? It says he devours his own flesh. It's kind of weird. Why does it say that? Well, because when you just quit, then you have nothing else to eat. Right? And when there's, there's no food in the cupboard, you're the only thing left. But it's even more than that. Right? It's not, we're not talking just physically, but it's actually um, emotionally and spiritually destructive. Right? So both people, the, the strivers and the lazy, are both, are both for themselves. Right? They're living for themselves. And then he gives us a picture of another person. In verses uh, 7 and 8, he talks about the guy who works so hard, he has no son, he has no brother, there's no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied. He never checks up and looks around and says, who am I doing all this for? One, one pastor wrote, this is the guy who could buy dinner for everyone in the restaurant, but no one wants to sit at the table with him. And that's okay, because he doesn't want to sit with them either. Right? He has so dedicated himself to pursuing his work that he never stops and turns around and goes, what am I doing here? Who is this for? And so, again, we have this vision of life lived for the self. Life lived for me. How does the preacher want to change our perspective? What, what would a life better lived look like? Well, it starts by going back to verse 6 where he says, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Better is one hand full of quietness than two hands full of toil. What's he talking about? Contentment. Being content. One hand full of quietness instead of two hands full of fruitless labor. Jeremiah Burroughs. He's a Puritan pastor, and he, wrote a, he actually wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And he says this, We normally think that to achieve contentment, we need to elevate our possessions to the level of our desires. Right? So one way to get, be content is to get more. He says, but the Christian has another way to contentment. He can bring his desires down to his possessions, contentment. G.K. Chesterton basically says the same thing. He's a, a British writer who came some years later. He says, there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. So, what are your desires this is where I'll go back and plug the Pursuing the Heart workshop. One of the things that's so helpful for us to learn is getting down underneath our thoughts and our feelings to our deep desires. What do we want? Our desires. And then, so contentment is one way to live life better. But then he gives us some more ways in verse 9. He says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. And twelve, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. 
A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Life is best lived when we live it with other people and when we live it to benefit others. Right? Against the guy who strives and has nothing to share, nothing to, to share in, he doesn't have anyone to share it with. The person who works alongside someone else, they get to not only share the labor, but they get to share the reward. Life is best lived when we benefit others instead of ourselves. Which goes back to what I mentioned earlier about Jesus, who said that love for God and love for neighbor go hand in hand. It's good for us, and it's good for our neighbor. And in fact... Let's put those two together, the contentment and benefiting other people. When we bring our possessions down to the level of our desires, I bet we'll find that we usually have plenty to share. There's a quote on our dining room wall, um, and it says, it's from Anne Frank. Anne Frank, no one ever became poor by giving. No one ever became poor by giving. That's what the preacher wants. That's, that's how the preacher wants us to see life. That no one ever became poor by giving. That life's meaning is not found sitting on the couch, binge watching another series. It's not found in a late night at the office striving to get ahead. It's not found in, in pressing others down so that you can further your cause. A life well lived is found in giving yourself away. For others, which is exactly what Jesus demonstrates for us. In John 12, Jesus says, Unless a seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it falls into the earth and dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is talking about himself. That he would fall into the earth and die. He would give of himself, and as a result, it would bear much fruit. That is how Jesus saves us from ourselves. It's how he liberates us from our own self-obsession. And it's how he frees us to do the same for others. Let's pray. Father, as we continue on this road with Ecclesiastes, we just pray that you would show us where real meaning in life is found. And that you would show us what it means to live life for the benefit of others instead of simply for ourselves.